we didn't get to this place. Yeah, I know it's a random, like there are many different confluences of events that have gotten us to to what I would consider like this complete renaissance in mountain biking and trail building. And it's been a, a combination of factors, but underlying all of this has been a lot of hard work by a lot of people. Welcome to Trail Effect episode 39. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 39 features Bryce Minnick. Bryce has been a writer and editor in the mountain bike world for the past 15 years. Currently, Bryce is the editor-in-chief at Freehub Magazine, which is well-known for covering the topics of trails and communities, so it is fitting to have Bryce on the show. This is the longest episode to date on Trail Effect. It is well worth the time, as Bryce is by far the most traveled person I've had on the show, and he has a ton of knowledge and perspective to share. If you have not checked out Freehub Magazine, I encourage you to do so, as the articles that Freehub features on both communities and people are truly inspiring. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Salsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenick of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and to the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Should we kick off an official interview intro? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, I've got Bryce Mag here. Editor-in-chief at Freehub Magazine on Trail Effect. How's it going today, Bryce? It's going good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's awesome to have another media person on the show to to provide your insight and what you see in the industry because there's a lot of things going on in the industry right now from a trails perspective and a community perspective, and Freehub is nailing that. We're doing our best. Um, we feel like we're kind of in the middle of it all, and it's a good it's a good place to be. It's uh, you know a lot of similarities between what what you're doing with the podcast and what we do with every print issue and uh, everything we put out on our website and every kind of narrative driven short film that we put out. It's, you know, a lot of what we try to do is just tell stories of, you know, people who are doing hard work to bring us to the place where we are right now. So it's uh love making new friends and, and establishing new connections. And we're all kind of, it could sound corny to say, but I really do feel like we're, we're at a point where we're lifting each other up more than ever before. You know, I guess technology has made that a lot more accessible to us, but I think it's also just mountain bikers growing up <laughs> and having multiple generations of, of mountain biking. And it's not necessarily a, a young sport as it, used to be and just learning how to communicate with other people and work with 
work with different groups. I think it's it's rehabilitated our image over the past 15 years greatly. Yeah. Yeah. Freehub years ago did an article on a guy that used to work here and live here and grew up here in La Crosse, Greg, uh, Greg Heath. He's out of Bellingham. He owns oh, yeah. Donkelope and he works Easter. He doesn't work now because he lives in Bellingham, but he used to work for the bike shop that supports this podcast. That's where he got his, his bike skills. Yeah. So nice. Greg's a pretty awesome guy. But let's learn about Bryce. How did you get into this world of journalism and mountain biking and all the good stuff that we're into? Well, it, it's, it's a pretty convoluted story actually, but um, you know, I started riding mountain bikes probably around 1989 or 1990 when I was in, in, in university. And, you know, back then I, my first bike was, it was a Bridgestone MB five or an MB six. I can't remember fully rigid. And uh, so that's kind of almost like, that dates me on that front for sure. But then when I uh, got out of university, I immediately moved to Russia and started working as a foreign correspondent. And I worked for you know multiple news organizations over a period of many years. And while I was in Russia, I wasn't mountain biking at all. I ended up moving to China in the kind of uh, mid to late 90s. And got fully back into mountain biking then. And, uh, you know, back then China was still the land of the bicycle. I got a fully rigid giant trooper and was using, you know, chromoly frame and was like whipping all over Beijing with that. And then ended up concocting this idea to let's ride bikes from Beijing to Pakistan and cross the entire country on mountain bikes. And we actually got like a mini mini sponsorship from giant because we met some of the taiwanese guys that were based in kunshan in southern china and it gave us uh their first generation carbon fiber uh frames which were bonded it was called the kdex was the name of that model Jeez, did that ring a bell oh i owned one <laughs> did you yes i had a, like i think it was like the cfm3 if i remember right that that rings a bell I'm trying to remember one one of the guys who started the, the Beijing to Pakistan trip with us, got the first monocoque frame, which was called the Monex. And his back was always hurting on the first like month of the trip. And so he called it the Monex as if it were M-O-A-N. But he ended up bailing on the, on the expedition in Xi'an. And we spent another two and a half months just riding dirt roads. We were initially trying to keep uh, the main ramparts of the Great Wall of China in in our field of view every day, and just traveling to the west and keeping that in view. And it was uh, pretty straightforward for the first couple of months, but then it got harder to find that stuff. So then we ended up just crossing mountains and desert on mostly double track, and uh, then that just you know rekindled my love for everything on bikes and. I eventually moved to Hong Kong and there's a lot of uh, pretty cool trails on the various islands around Hong Kong. So while I was, I was still working as a news journalist and ended up uh, working for Reuters news agency. And, but multiple days of the week, I'd be like on a ferry straight after work to go to an island and rip some trails and, and get back to my, to my apartment. And that just led to more kind of big, kind of more expedition style mountain bike travels over the next decade in different parts of Tibet, 
and then all through Central Asia, like you name a stand. I've ridden my bike there with for all the way from Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. And and then finally, you know, after living abroad for almost 16 years, I just was kind of like, maybe I need to go back to my home country and kind of <laughs> get my North American identity back. And a job opportunity at Bike Magazine presented itself to me through, you know, a random introduction. And uh, I ended up becoming the managing editor of Bike Magazine. And then after a few years, became the editor-in-chief of Bike Mag and spent 12 years of my life over the, you know, working, working for the magazine and got to travel all over the world and write features, meet, meet people, make friends, um, catch up on a lot of lost time not riding in North America and was fortunate enough to get to ride in so many different parts of North America as well. And it radically changed my life, you know, because I'd gone from being a you know, a hardcore news journalist and covering all different, everything from politics to financial markets and, you know, hitting a crossroads in my life where I was like, covering news is not making me happy. And then to kind of land on my feet in Southern California, working for uh, what was then, you know, the biggest circulation mountain bike magazine in North America. And it was a real kind of gift, you know, to be able to transition and still stick with another stick with journalism but use you know my background and abilities of storytelling and just the bare bones of editing and things like that to become part of you know feel really connected to the mountain bike world um was really it's been a really special thing and then the past two and a half years that i've been at editor-in-chief at free hub has it has been a completely and, and, you know, in many ways, an even more rewarding experience because it's, it's a, you know, Freehub is a rider owned and operated small publishing house. And it's been a real kind of eye opener for me um, being outside of a corporate publishing group, because that was always one of the biggest struggles that I had during, you know, my, I guess, 12 years at Bike Magazine was you know, is what people, what readers and subscribers see or people who go to the website or look at your YouTube channel, they just see the good stuff, you know, the things that we're trying to project out there. And, you know, essentially what, what all the, the good titles are trying to do, whether it's Surfer Magazine or Powder Magazine, is to try to like spread the stoke of being outdoors and being involved in these action sports that are really closely tied to nature, whether it's like spending time in water with waves or, you know, on a mountain with snow or, you know, in the forest or in the mountains with, with trails, you know, we're, we've, we've always been trying to spread that stoke and get people more excited or if people are in a, some sort of a rut in life, which everybody every human will go through, you know, and I used to get the letters, you know, back in the day when people would write letters to the editor or email letters to the editor, instead of just blowing up your Instagram feed, you know, we get really poignant letters from people saying, you know, they've gone through all kinds of different turmoil in their life and they picked up a copy of bike mag and, you know, it rekindled their, their love for something that they had 
you know, abandoned for one reason or another. And it's, you know, so mountain bikes and trails, you know, it sounds, you know, it, it can sound a little melodramatic to say it, but it, they do change people's lives and they've changed all of our lives in many different ways. And, you know, if you look at back on, if any individual looks back on their entire life and looks at the way bicycles and mountain bikes have intersected their lives and you could draw a narrative of pretty much everybody who has ever been a mountain biker you could draw a narrative of their life and how it is the interplay between mountain bikes and trails and how it's contributed to their life so i think that even though you know vertical publishing and mountain bike media could be viewed as very like insular and navel gazy and those are valid criticisms i think overall you know when we're doing things our best we are contributing to goodness in the world and it is a worthwhile endeavor and so even when i've been kind of bogged down in like impossible deadlines and spending weekends catching up on my writing and things like that i've always tried to uh keep sight of you know what the end goal is is to you know inject from my point of view is inject positivity into a sphere that's already pretty positive but can use can use more of it the downside to being part of a corporate publishing group which is something that i think readers you know you don't want readers to sense or feel that is the constant struggle that you'll have with any corporate owner and like during my time at bike magazine i think we we went through at least five if not six corporate mergers and would have a new corporate owner with a new agenda and you know over that 12-year timeline the the you know the continual tendency and the continual pressure for us to become more clickbaity and just focus on things that drive website traffic, uh, which is usually gear and shiny widgets and things that we all, most of us mountain bikers do geek out about. You know, for the core staff and my team at bike, we, we never really, that wasn't the thing that really drove us. And so we were constantly resisting this push to just, to just cover gear and the things that as individuals, most of us personally considered less soulful and less gratifying. So it was constantly trying to strike that balance between like covering more gear and getting those impressions and driving more traffic to your website and your Instagram account. And, but while still doing our long form storytelling and, and the things that we think that mattered personally the most to us and which we believed in our heart of hearts mattered the most to our readers, the people that actually would would pay to renew their subscription to the print magazine every year. And, you know, you can call me old school to a fault and that's fine, but I still believe in the value of print and print media. And it's kind of, yeah, yeah that's our latest issue. And I'm so happy that we have so many subscribers and free hub subscription base is continuing to grow. And to me, it's reaffirming my belief in the, you know, the, the inherent value of long form storytelling and that there is interest out there and there are people that are willing to pay 
pay money when a lot of mountain bikers don't have much disposable income and we save it all up for upgrades on bike parks and bike parts and trips to, to go ride new trails and for someone to, you know, dedicate $35 a year to subscribe to our magazine is something we don't take for granted. And it puts the onus on us to make sure that we're, you know, constantly looking for good stories, meaningful stories. And there's so many of them out there. And I'm sure you're, you're dealing with this with the, with the trail effect podcast is like, Oh my God, the list is going to keep getting bigger and bigger of people who have contributed to mountain biking and trail building and how to even narrow the list down to, you know, to people. I mean, you'll, you'll be doing this for years because there's, you know, you find, you know, I've, I'm, I guess in my 15th year of mountain bike magazine publishing, and I'm still just ticking off a list of people that I've wanted to either personally write about myself or get a writer on an assignment to write a profile. I mean, it was only two issues ago that we finally got around to writing to, to publishing a profile on Shams March. Who's, who's a, an icon of the sport and has affected mountain biking on so many different levels. And, you know, it's my 15th year in mountain bike publishing before I even made time to, you know, to put all the pieces in place to get a definitive, what we hope would be a more definitive story on Shams March. And, you know, part of me is, kicking myself and be like, how did it take this long? You should have done this eight years ago, but you know, sometimes better late than never. And, but yeah, it's, you know, I think with Freehub, one of the most refreshing parts of, of working there, apart from just working with like every single member of the Freehub team, which is still a small team is what I would call soul patrol. And I know that's kind of a cliched term, but everybody's doing everybody who works there is working there for very similar reasons i mean we love mountain biking we love trail building and and we believe that you know the community focus all over say north america for example is one of the main things that's that's raised us up to what i would consider a more noble ethos and you know, it's been really gratifying working with, you know, a team of like-minded people and who are driven by the passion of it and who are also driven by, you know, just the, the geeky artistry of putting a magazine together and focusing on what we hope is good design, quality photography, you know, qual- you know, thoughtful pacing of photographs along with the story and just the general artistry of it. And then thankfully not have to be, be dealing with a purely profit-driven corporate apparatus. And now we're the only print magazine in North America that's not owned by some sort of a publishing group. And it feels continually liberating for me as well. And I know it does for the rest of our team to just be able to choose stories based on their journalistic merit or just the merit of, you know, whether it's a destination piece and then Inevitably, we end up talking about the people involved in that community. And that's if you're doing journalism properly, if you're going to be focusing on any given destination, you'd want to be trying to identify 
you know, it's hard to narrow down a list, but the key figures in any community who have who have brought a community to where it is at the current moment and then trying to get, you know, trying to orchestrate them being available for photographs and for for interviews and getting quotes and things like that. And it's uh, when things all come together, it's it's quite gratifying to see them to see them fall into place and actually like land in the pages of the magazine. And there's never going to be a story that's perfect. Like I think we always end up, you know, if you have perfectionist tendencies, I look back at probably every single story that's ever been published during my tenure at bike magazine and free hub. And I can always poke holes in it and be like, we should have talked to that person too. We could have gotten photos of this. So you're never going to do it to the extent that you really want to do it. But I guess as long as you're trying your hardest, you know, you can put out stories that hopefully will be meaningful and hopefully will build up the entire community. That was a long, that was a long winded sentence, wasn't it? (laughs) That's all right. And it's, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, Shams March, that was a guy that I actually got to personally meet and ride next to in the nineties when he was racing for mountain cycle. Yeah. You know, and that was, and I remember being at Breckenridge at the Norba National when he won his first Norba National. Oh, and man. that was and that, that was, was a really good. messy day. It poured that day. He is a he is a very I think he's really underrated as far as like where he is in the bike industry. He's super and at the same time he's so humble that it's tough to, you know, really learn a lot about him because he is so he just does his thing. And yeah. he's so skilled. He really he is skilled. It's, it's, it, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I really felt like we were several years late. We, sh- somebody should have run a definitive profile on Shams, you know, several years ago, but you know, it, any given volume, you're trying to tick off a lot of boxes and cover different geographies and things like that. And then, but it, it's interesting to, to have put out a profile on him this year given where he is now with with his coaching and he's in a, he's in a much more kind of contented place in his life and it allowed us to make it more even more of a retrospective you know of where he's come from yeah definitely being kind of overshadowed by other key figures in the DH racing scene back back in the 90s and then even the free ride scene like i think a lot of people who've only come into mountain biking in recent years, probably wouldn't even have much of an idea that he was, you know, involved in the first few rampages. And, you know, he was an iconic figure. And then he's also stayed involved with the sport to this very date. I mean, he was at the Olympics coaching, coaching the U.S. Olympic team just two weeks ago. And he's been involved in coaching for the, for the last almost two decades and, and coaching curriculum. And it's, you know, it's important to tell those stories. I'm, I mean, and I think that people can, you know, I think not only like learning just details about people that you might not have known before, but also, you know, I think his story is inspirational because, um, you know, it's something that a lot of readers will inevitably identify with because a lot of us came up rough and he, you know, he had a, he had a, you know, a nomadic upbringing, moved around a lot. And, you know, even his early time in mountain biking was, was fraught with difficulties. And he's, and he's 
managed to, through a positive attitude, keep turning those things around into a positive each and every time, which I, that's what I loved about when the story finally came together, or was able to see like, you know, that this is a story of constantly like making lemonade out of lemons. And, um, you know, I think those types of stories can help pull us all out of the dumps when we're, when we're having, going through rough patches, which every single human does. And, you know, that's one of the funny things about being, you know, part of, part of the mountain bike industry and part of quote unquote mountain bike media and even being, you know, to whatever extent being viewed as a mountain bike media personality. It's, you know, it's a struggle for me because you want to always put positivity out there, but every single human goes through hard periods and, you know, whether it's, you know, relationship driven things or health issues and, you know, trying to still put positivity out there, even when you're personally going through a rough patch, whether it's like a breakup of a long relationship or, you know, I'm going, I'm personally going through some health things right now. And, you know, that's part of what's, it's a blessing and a curse because it's my work with Freehub is part of what's keeping me focused on something positive. But then it's also on any given odd day when I'm like, super worried about an issue or something, I can be like, well, okay, this is another reason to stay positive is because, you know, you're, you're trying to do this work and maybe through your own, you know, personal struggle that is probably going to be a temporary thing. Maybe something good will come out of this as well. So it's, uh, that's, that's something that kind of, I think over time helps to motivate me to continue to try to focus on, on good stories about people who make things happen because we didn't get to this place. Yeah. I know it's a random, like there are many different confluences of events that have gotten us to, to what I would consider like this complete Renaissance in mountain biking and trail building. And it's been a, a combination of factors, but underlying all of this, has been a lot of hard work by a lot of people. And I was talking to, I was up in Bellingham working on the new issue of Freehub last week and was uh, talking over dinner with Brandon Watts, the founder and publisher of Freehub. And that was one of the things that where the discussion kind of went, because we're working on a film project right now that's kind of telling a chronology of mountain biking and trail building and how we got to where we are right now. And one of the kind of common denominators is that it was just a lot of hard work by a lot of really passionate, driven people. And and then a combination of that and then people growing, you know, growing more mature and learning how to interact with other people that used to maybe be perceived as kind of the enemy, you know, land managers or used to, you know, we can all remember when there was a much more and it wasn't that long ago when there was a much more antagonistic kind of relationship between what might have been viewed as rogue trail builders and land managers. And I think, you know, one of the main things has been people growing up and learning that, you know, people in areas of responsibility and, and advocacy, learning like, hey, arguing with, with people is not really changing things and it's only making things worse. And if we just establish a more kind of calm, more 
rational approach to our conversations within each community with local land managers, with community officials. It's a lot of that steady, tedious diplomacy that's gotten us to a place. And then now we're in an era where a lot of land managers have grown up mountain biking and there are a lot of land managers that are actually riders, which helps, which has helped tremendously with a, you know, a natural kind of dialogue in key, key areas and all throughout North America. It's, um, you know, honestly, if you'd ask me even seven years ago, if I thought that in 2020 and 2021, we'd be where we are right now, I don't think I would have been as optimistic. I think it's, I think it's, it's definitely taken me by surprise how the quantum leap we've had over the past few years. And I think it's probably taken a lot of us by surprise. And I think, you know, there's other things like, you know, technological advancements in with mountain bikes, kind of lowering the barrier to entry in terms of difficulty. The advent of the flow trail, I think, has lowered the, you know, entry barrier into mountain biking. Kids bikes even being like having bikes that actually fit kids um, at a younger age. I mean, we're seeing like generation coming up right now that's it's already blowing our minds in terms of their level of skill. And I personally am thrilled to see that. I feel the same way about most action sports. I'm also a, a lifelong surfer and I'm very passionate about that sport. And I feel the same way about you know these upcoming generations of surfers. And I hear like some of my buddies out in the lineup grumbling about all the groms like back paddling us and taking all the waves. But I find it exhilarating because I'm like, wow, man, that look, they're all on the inside, like busting 360 airs and surfing better than any of us. A, did when we were that age and definitely than we do now. And I love to see like human progression. And so for from on the mountain biking side, you know, just seeing where all of these different avenues have led us to a point where, you know, Mountain biking is now a very mainstream sport. We're no longer viewed as renegades and outlaws. And it's it's an accepted outdoor pastime. And I think, you know, obviously COVID and people who weren't previously predisposed to spending a lot of time outdoors had no choice but to go outdoors. And now, you know, riding bikes and even riding bikes on trails is bigger now than ever. And I suppose that's you know, something that we're all kind of confronting now is where does that leave us, you know, from a trail building and trail maintenance point of view. And that's something we've talked about a lot um, over the past year at Freehub because all, all the guy, uh, you know, the team up in Bellingham last year have, have just seen so many of the trails that they've worked on and built and been involved in maintaining, just getting blown up by people coming in from, out of town or even just coming up from Seattle and even a lot of newbies, you know, and people that aren't invested yet. And I say yet, because the hope is that they will become invested over time in doing that side of the work. Cause now I think our biggest challenge is like, it's no longer legitimizing mountain biking as a sport or something in the public eye, because it's, it's totally legitimized and it's more legitimized than, equestrianism there's more people riding mountain bikes and there might be more people riding mountain bikes on trails than hikers now at this point 
So now I think the big challenge is going to be like trying to keep the message out there that, you know, once you fall in love with mountain biking and become a mountain biker and ride trails, it's everybody's responsibility to be a custodian of those trails as well. So if you like, you know, you're, you know, blasting down the trail and you blast past a bunch of people building or packing in a berm, maybe you should get off your bike and make some new friends and, you know, do a little work for a little while. And so we've had a lot of discussions internally at Freehub about that, especially over the past year. And once we realized how even the COVID-19 pandemic forcing more people outdoors, which on the face of it is a positive thing, but then we've had to reckon with well, this is immediately having an impact on our trails, whether it's my local trails here in Encinitas, California, or all the trails with the you know the rest of the crew up in Bellingham or name any different community. I think we've all felt the impact. And I think the challenge we're going to face now is getting the message out there to people. And fortunately, you know, at Freehub being a media organization, we have, you know, we have print mag that's got the biggest circulation in mountain biking right now and we've got a website that that turns over a reasonable amount of consistent traffic so we're like well we kind of have a responsibility to start thinking about ways to get that message out there and one of the ways was with this volume this year in free hub we started you know we concocted the idea of well let's do a trail etiquette column with each issue which i got delegated to write myself and the challenge with doing that is like not sounding preachy uh, because, you know, <laughs> you know, you don't nobody wants to put themselves on a moral pedestal because we're all flawed individuals. And the, soon, the moment you do that, you're going to get knocked off it by somebody. But we wanted to kind of like in a self-deferential way, talk about, you know, even basic things like trail etiquette and right of way. And things like that that seem like mountain bike 101 for those of us who've been doing it for decades or even several years. But we're realizing that there's so many people that are just getting into the sport. And you can see it on the trail when someone's like blasting past you when you're on a on a two-way trail. And someone's blasting past you on the descent and doesn't even like give way. And you're like, okay, this person's probably new, new to the sport. And maybe... Maybe we need to find a way to get that message out there in, in a, you know, in a positive way. It's not in a lecturing way. So that's been the kind of challenge we're trying to think of ways to creatively like tell that story through funny illustrations and um, even making fun of the way I've been writing these is like to actually make fun of myself or some way that I, you know, messed up over over the years and and then weaving that into the story to then expand into a broader kind of narrative about, you know, whether it's something to do with like rules of the trail or trail etiquette or just pitching in with your local community and, or even any community that you travel regularly to, you know, I think we, we're all going to be facing an increasing amount of responsibility to do that because the amount of trail repairs that I think most of our communities are facing right now is we're going to need a lot more help from a lot of people. And then just embracing these people who are just coming into the sport because we want them, we want them to be there because it's a, it's broadening the community and hopefully it will lead to more trail builders and more trails 
and then more people to turn up for trail days and, you know, pitch in with maintenance of key trails that we want to still be in good nick, you know. I don't know, Josh, are you guys experiencing that with all the new trails up in Lacrosse? Like what what's the what's it been like over the past several months? We've we've had those same experiences. In fact, I literally just had a conversation today with our parks director about and I've been having this conversation casually with a bunch of people about how we, you know, I, I love volunteers. I'm a volunteer. I've been volunteering forever, but volunteers can only go so far and only do so much because we have regular jobs, right? We, and some of us still have families and kids and everything else. And so exactly, I've been trying to push a, a, a model of like, let's get some paid staff, at least summer staff. And that can work on maintenance when the rest of us that do volunteer are working. And that's not to replace volunteers because I believe the soul of what we do lies in our community and a lot of that community comes from volunteering it does yeah you know and and so we don't want to we don't want to push the volunteering aside but the math in terms of getting staying up on maintenance doesn't really work when you're talking one you know if, like in lacrosse we do monday nights one monday night um, first or first three monday nights of the month may through august so it's three mondays a month two hours a night with anywhere from 20 to, and we've had upwards of 40 or 50 people show up, which is huge, but you still can't get to everything that needs to be done. And so to kind of find that balance and get some funding to actually, you know, get on top of some of the stuff. We just had the heaviest rainfall we've ever seen in lacrosse last Saturday. And that's saying a lot because we've had some horrific floods here in the last five years. Yeah. And so now we're, you know, like I'll be out packing berms at seven in the morning tomorrow to put one of our trails back together, you know, and there'll be, I bet you 35 to 50 people show up to be easily. That's so awesome. But you know, I, I totally agree with your point. I think that it's inevitable that getting more funding behind, you know, being able to hire, you know, even professional trail builders to come in and, and, you know, not just build new trails, but even do, do critical pieces of maintenance. It does seem inevitable. And one thing I've been, really thinking a lot about the past two years at, at Freehub with each community uh, story that we end up publishing is I'm starting to see more of an immediate, in several key instances, immediate reaction um, as to how, like, it's making me want to be, to be even more kind of over the top with how we present our community-based features and you know you know it's it's always a delicate balance because if you get too much into the kind of nitty-gritty background of all the tedium that certain people went through to get a community to where it is um you know you don't want to lose your reader by getting too much into the weeds with all that because you still want to tell an engaging story but I think more people are relating to those stories now than ever because more people more people are mountain biking, more people are involved in local trail building efforts. So they it's more interesting to them because they're like, oh, this resonates with something I'm experiencing in my in my community. And I'll t- tell you a really fascinating story. We just in our 12-2 issue, which our spring issue of Freehub, we ran a feature on you know, the growing scene in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And that was the same issue that our lacrosse feature was in. And, you know, the community there in Chattanooga was, was really, really stoked about, you know, that, you know, that there was attention on, on their growing trail community. And 
the guy who's the head of the local Sorba chapter is, and he was in the feature, his name's Les Warnock. And he was really excited about the feature and he ended up getting my phone number from the photographer who shot the feature and called me and he was just like, Hey, got this idea. He's like our new mayor of Chattanooga is, um, he and his wife are really like supportive of like outdoor recreation and that growth in outdoor recreation tourism in Chattanooga because they're kind of modeling themselves to be a kind of a mini boulder, Colorado. That's been one of the mantras they've had there over the years. And he was like, and they're, um, you know, they're very interested in, you know, getting substantial sums of money allocated for a new zone that uh, Les Warnock has personally invested invested a lot of time and energy in it's a place called Walden's Ridge that it's good more technical more technical gravity focused trail network that he's getting up and running and he was like can you send a couple of copies of free hub and a handwritten note to the mayor of Chattanooga uh, because he's actually considering making a sizable personal donation as well and I was like well, that sounds pretty cool, but is it creepy to send it to his mail? Like to it, he's like, no, just send it to his mailbox. And my buddy's a friend of the mayor, and he'll explain it, so he won't think that you're like ed- editor of Freehub stalking the mayor of Chattanooga or whatever. So you know, we sent him. Long story short, we sent him a hand wrote, handwritten note and some issues of Freehub. And uh, Les Warnock tested texted me uh, last Friday night that. Um, he actually bumped into the mayor at an outdoor market and the mayor recognized him from the feature and told him that they're getting ready to make a, a massive, massive contribution to actually where they can actually hire some professional trail builders to come in and help really kickstart that network. So this might be a kind of random and more extreme example of how a story can actually like be a catalyst for something bigger. And maybe not every story is going to have that immediate effect, like hopefully touch wood, it will in Chattanooga. But it does matter. It does make a difference. And just like hearing, you know, hearing back from Les Warnock about about this is like kind of just put me over the moon because I'm like, you know, when I'm in the weeds on a deadline and riding through the weekend and trying to hit a deadline and feeling kind of like oh, exhausted over something, it, I'll be able to remember, hey, this Every story you put out, whether it's about lacrosse, Wisconsin, or, you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Harrisonburg, Virginia, it's, it could have, it could have impacts on multiple levels and lead to what actually, at the end of the day, is opportunities to raise more money for new trails. Because, you know, all the trails in the Bentonville area, that place is blown up more than any place in the history of mountain biking anywhere in the world. And the reason for it is Walmart money. And we all know that. And that's a great and a beautiful thing. And it shows what can happen when you have serious investment into outdoor recreation in an hour, you know, in, in our sphere of the world in mountain biking. And, you know, my hope is that through, you know, everything that Freehub does, that there can be that kind of positive knock-on effect that can create greater awareness of like, oh, this is happening and this is a real thing. And, you know, whether it's reflecting it through photography or a print feature or a short film, our shared goal at Freehub is to 
build upon that. And we, we, we take it seriously. We actually, that's really the only reason we're doing this because we're not, you know, we're all still renting apartments. <laughs> we're not, we're not getting rich working at free hub. And that's, you know, that's not the point, you know, the point is to, to, you know, create a quality magazine and hopefully continually be, you know, be a positive force in the, at, at the very least, the North American mountain bike community. And, uh, and I'm sure you're feeling the same way. I mean, why are you, why are you doing this podcast, Josh? Because I wanted to get the story out on how communities are being brought up or the quality of life within communities is, is engaged, increasingly getting better due to trails. I mean, that's really the root of it. And I, I'm personally very curious about how different communities have done their stuff. Every community has a different way or a different angle and how they got to where they got to. And I think if we can get that story out, other communities can take little bits and pieces and implement that within their community and then hopefully grow from there. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, and, and drawing from um, similarities of what, you know, the similarities of challenges and things like that. I think ultimately we end up kind of supporting each other in, in the same way, because it is kind of, you know, there's differences and similarities between every community, but there's, you know, the similarity of the struggle can often be like astoundingly similar Mm -hmm. and, you know, just seeing other people's success stories and, and, and also just knowing the personal struggle that each, each individual went through to get to that place, you know, is, can help, I think can help each other individual when they're kind of down and like, Oh, another meeting, you know, another community meeting that I've got to go to after a long day of work and I'm exhausted and I don't feel like being diplomatic today. And the struggle is real, you know, and it's, it's thanks to all that hard graft over, you know, a period of at least two decades that has helped get us to this point, you know, and mountain bikers should all be grateful. You know, uh, it's, it's kind of funny. One of my local trails here in Encinitas, California, you know, you know, going back to when I moved here from Asia, a couple of buddies of mine just kind of like, yeah, we were kind of rogue trail builders, but it was San Diego open space and it was legal to build there. And we started like, you know, we started digging in some, some switchbacky trails and, uh, you know, the urban expansion in San Diego County has been staggering. Uh, you know, it seems like everyone in the United States of America has moved here over the past several years. And there have been a lot of these areas where we had trails that have become planned communities. And now there's like, you know, it's the stretch of suburbia that's going into like deeper into the eastern part of the county. and some of these trails have just been built over and everything, but there's a couple of zones that I still ride in and they're on the, there's communities that are encroaching this hill. And now there's a lot of hikers, people who've moved into these houses and everything, and they hike on those trails. And then every now and again, you'll get, you'll, you know, I'm super respectful when I ride past a hiker, I'm, I'm pretty mellow. I always slow down and say hi and stuff, but occasionally you'll get a grumpy hiker that's like, you know, I'll be like, did you know that I, I built this trail? I actually built it. So, you know, but you don't want to be a smart ass and say, so you can thank me later. You know, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of trails that people, you know, even use as 
for hiking and walking in North America were actually at this point in time were built by mountain bikers and are still maintained by mountain bikers. And I feel like I feel like a challenge for us as a community is getting that message out beyond our community. Because I don't really know the best way to do that because, you know, with your podcast, presumably it's going to be initially it's mostly a mountain biking audience. And Freehub, our subscriber base is definitely a mountain biking core audience. So how to get that message out more broadly in the community, I think is a another challenge. I don't know. Do you have do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, for one, backing up a little bit. You know, you talked about going to meetings and I wanted to quick mention something about that. I used to get really frustrated and people that know me can attest to this. When you get resistance at meetings from hikers or whoever about putting in a new mountain bike trail or getting access onto a trail that was previously maybe hike only. And, and I then I had to switch that narrative in my mind to this resistance is here for a reason. Let's take this resistance and learn from it so we can be better at selling what we are selling, which is trails, right? You know, to get, you know, so it's, it's like you, you almost have to have that resistance to really start to learn to be more diplomatic, as you talked about, and really kind of push that, push that model. And as far as, you know, getting, creating awareness and tying that into meetings, one of the things we've done in lacrosse, and I think this has been done other places too, is when we have a city council meeting that trails might be talked about from a funding perspective or whatever, we get mountain bikers. They've been getting, they've been getting really good at showing up especially kids, we have more of their jerseys, you know, so they don't, they stick out of the crowd and they know, even though they might not say a single thing, that whole meeting, people in that meeting know that they're here to support trails. Nice. That has opened a lot of eyes um, and, and it's, and it's worked really well, but yeah, that was again, part of this podcast. And I don't know, it, it is, how do we push this model into non mountain biking um, people, especially the people that make decisions, you know, the policymakers and and whatnot. And Bentonville is a good example. I've became friends with their parks director. I've had him on the podcast, and and he gets it, you know. And and I know Imba's gotten a lot of heat over the years for some of their stuff, but their initiative right now, which is kind of their really old initiative, is more trails close to home because not many people start mountain biking in the in the exotic places that we love to travel to. They start literally in their backyard. Exactly. You know, and so to to really start, you know, continuing that community based model, even if your community only has a hundred acres of open space. Yeah. You know, there's still a lot you yeah, can do with that. For sure. For sure. You know, I I feel like, you know, I I pretty excited about what where the next few years are gonna lead because I I'm kind of, you know, I've actually been kind of astonished as to the quantum leap we've made over the past, I'd say seven years in particular, and in, in, you know, in North America, and it's it's actually taken me a little bit by surprise. So now I'm kind of like, you know, my threshold for where where we could be headed, uh, the mountain bike community is like expanded beyond where I could have even imagined, you know, which which says a lot because I've been, you know writing stories about mountain biking for the last 15 years. And, you know, when it takes you by surprise, you're, you're like, wow, we're just, we're just scratching the surface of where this is all going to lead. 
And I think, I think it's going to become more important for us to like, uh, not just within communities, but between communities to start kind of aligning ourselves more broadly as a, as a national kind of, I don't want to use the word force, but as a national community that, that does have, that speaks in a diplomatic way to, you know, the beauty of mountain biking, the beauty of trails and, you know, the, the beauty of being a custodian of things that you're involved in, because the more you get it, the more, you know, the more you do it, the more, you know, I mean, half the community in Bellingham um, likes to dig as much as they like to ride. And some of them actually like, like digging more than riding at this point, you know? So, and so there's no coincidence why there's, you know, such a proliferation of world-class trails in a place like Bellingham, Washington. Um, and, you know, it becomes, you know, as people find it more, you know, even addicting, they're like, oh, I'm having a bad day. What, what to do? Like, I'll just go work on my trail. And, you know, it's a pastime in and of itself. And I, I think that's one thing that Freehub you know, I think it's one of the things that does kind of um, is a differentiating factor between Freehub and other mountain bike media is that we're also like Freehub has always been since Brandon Watts started it, has been involved in, in, you know, initially in the trail building community in Bellingham. But, you know, everybody on the Freehub team is a is a trail builder as well. And it's something that informs our storytelling as well. It's like we don't want to just write stories about only about industry people. And, you know, obviously we're going to write, you know, we're going to do profiles on like important athletes and people that we think have contributed on different levels. Uh, But it's not, you're not going to find just stories about famous mountain bike athletes throughout the issues of rehab. We're going to have stories about, you know, people working in the trenches because it, it's, I would almost say it's half mountain biking magazine, half trail building magazine. And it's kind of always been its organic focus. And it's becoming increasingly important to us at this time because we see how important this focus is going to be to, to account for this kind of quantum growth in the numbers of new mountain bikers that are out there now. You know, there are times when I think about it and I almost panic because I'm like, well, what, what are we going to do? And, you know, I think we just have to keep talking to each other and, you know, keep sharing ideas about how we are going to do this and how we are going to raise what inevitably is going to be raising money to do mass scale maintenance on existing trails and to keep building new trails to accommodate the, the growth in traffic, you know. It's a, it's a it's a good problem to have, I suppose, but it's definitely it's definitely an issue that we're going to be reckoning with, and already are. Yeah, for sure. So on that topic of trails and trail building, in your latest issue, you have an article called "Nomads and Misfits" with Greg Mazu, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, with Single Track Trails. That I did not know anything about that trail that he was speaking of, and so I had to do a bunch of research on it. That I think it's Palisades Plunge. Is that correct? Palisade, yeah, the Palisades Plunge is just outside of Grand Junction. Yeah. That sounded like a super epic build. Yeah. It, you know, we didn't, 
even realize, you know, I'd heard from, from different people that that was a pretty crazy trail that was going in, but it wasn't until we got like deeper into the story and Kurt, Kurt Gensheimer wrote that story. And, you know, he's a personal friend of Greg's who he's able to kind of dig into the, you know, get an honest story of just, just how damn hard it was to get that and how dangerous even that the actual trail building was. And I thought it was a really fascinating story even beyond that, because we were able to kind of delve into Greg Mazu's personal kind of management philosophy of like running a business and, you know, bringing people up who have demonstrated loyalty within a company to rather than trying to micromanage an entire company and do it his way, just kind of, you know, you know, and getting people. But I I think it's just, um, you know, his management philosophy of, of kind of, and getting people to who have been loyal within his company to just step up and resume like massive roles of responsibility kind of engendered that kind of loyalty with his entire team to be able to, to really stick with such a gnarly, like, you know, in many cases, downright dangerous build. And I actually got to meet Greg was coincidentally in, in Bellingham last week, meeting with some people and, uh, got to meet him in, in person. He stopped by the free hub office and uh, yeah, you could, you could tell that that whole project was, um, was, was a, almost a traumatic thing for, for him and his, and his team, you know, because it was such a, such a kind of, in, in many ways, unprecedented um, and ambitious project. And I, I, I can't wait till I get an opportunity to get out there and ride that because like the, you know, several people, from single track trails have been like, you got to get out here and ride it. And just, you know, looking for a, an opportunity or a time when it's responsible to travel there to get out and, and see what that trail is all about. But again, another chance to tell a story about that delves into not just that trail itself, but the entire trail company management philosophy that, you know, it seems like Greg Mazu believes that that's the only reason they stuck with it <laughs> through through such a you know building in a windy weather and like you know harnessed up on the side of side of a cliff and gale force winds you know it's that's commitment right there you know and you know we're we're really glad to be able to, m- to make that story happen when when it did you know so, you know shortly after the completion and just before the actual official christening of the trail in fact, with Kurt Gensheimer, I had I had to kind of like uh, he was because he's a very busy guy, you know, and he's he's constantly involved in one one trail project or another, and and or just off riding. And I was like, dude, we've got to make this happen right now. And actually, we to make this happen at this time, this story has to be done within the next two weeks. And can you just go to ground? And he was like, he's a, he's such a good guy. He's like, okay, I'll do it. And like three days later, he had his draft to us. So, you know, hats off to, to, you know, and, and again, somebody like Kurt Gensheimer, you know, I'm, it could be any number of our contributors, but like, you know, ultimately it comes down to like writers and photographers hustling on, on often short timelines to get, to make something happen and to pull it together so that we can get it into an issue that we feel like it thematically 
really fits and helps accentuate a whole issue. I mean, it's the same thing with the lacrosse story. <laughs> we, we had, it was like several people hustling at the last minute to like, oh, I, can we get those D&Gs from Chris Gebert? Is that how you pronounce? Chris Gebert. Gebert, yeah. And we're like, and he's off, he's off working on a trail somewhere. And when, we're, when I'm asking for his like high res files and we're like down to the very last day before uploading the issue to the printer before he was back to get his high res. It's like high drama sometimes to like bring all the elements together. But then in the end, I think we all breathe a collective sigh of relief. We're like, oh my God, it's in, it's uploading to the printer, you know? And then like a month later, you guys have the issue and you can see like, you know, oh, okay. It was worth the, the hustle at the, you know, at the last minute to get it in that, that issue, which was the community issue, you know? So yeah. Hats off yeah. to every, everybody up there for hustling to make that happen. I was, uh, I was out on a road ride and my phone started like blowing up and I'm like, what is this? It was pretty early spring when trails were still closed here. And, and I'm like, what is my, why is my phone vibrating so much? And I got home and I, I see all this stuff from, from, you know, a couple of different people at rock solid about getting this thing together. And it's, it was awesome, you know, and I fortunately was able to ride with Chris Gaber last week in, in Copper Harbor. You know, which oh, is what sweet. Rock Salad is based out of, and you know, you were talking earlier, but I think before we hit record about listening to episodes, he was episode number two for this. For this, Aaron, Aaron Rogers was Aaron, or Chris? Aaron was one. Chris was two. Okay, and Chris used to do photos for Bike Mag back in the day, like way back in the day. And you got to listen to the story on how he got in with Bike Magazine because it's an interesting one. Oh wow! I'll 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 definitely I'll definitely tune into that one. It's it it took a turn that I never would have foreseen, and it was super funny. Oh wow! So that's that's hilarious. Yeah, he um yeah that was a real that was a real trip like getting getting all those things together at the last minute and uh also you know again to the community theme like. You know, I remember I sent because there were several people involved in the email with the draft of the story and I did my edit of it. And then you guys were gracious enough to both you and Jed to chime in. on. Like, I, I am kind of that way with community stories like, oh, you know, old school journalism at newspapers and things like back then today, you would never share your story with any contacts or anything because it's your own fiefdom and it your own journalistic autonomy and over all these years in the vertical media you know working for mountain bike magazines i've gone the complete opposite direction and i share drafts with everybody i can within a given timeline in a community who i feel is an authoritative figure authoritative voice and knowledgeable and if i if if i have the time i try to get that in an email to all the people who are quoted in the story to get their feedback. Like, you know, is there anything we're missing here? Are all the facts correct? Because, you know, fact checking, you know, it seems like a mainstream media, it's a, it's a dying art, you know, with television based news and, and all the misinformation that's out there on social media. And, you know, so just getting the bare facts of a story doesn't seem to be anything that sacrosanct anymore in in mainstream society but me being a career journalist like it's it's everything to me and you know when i get a fact wrong 
in an issue, it eats at me forever. And, you know, I've had two factual errors that I know of in this volume this year. And I've, you know, been doing most of the fact checking myself. So I kick myself even harder. But um, that's one way I rely on. I'm, I'm like, I want, rather than hide the draft from everyone and keep it a secret until it hits the presses, I'd rather have more eyeballs on things and get people's honest, you know, I want their honest feedback or is the, is the tone of the article in the spirit of the community? Is it act, is it accurately reflect the community? Are the facts right? Are the trail names right? Are people's names spelled correctly? And even down to, are you happy with your quotes? Because if you feel like you want to finesse the way that, that you were quoted, I'm happy to, to tweak a quote so that someone's more, you know, isn't going to have to like explain something to somebody else later on for it being worded a certain way that could have hurt someone's feelings or caused, caused a rift somewhere, because that's not, that's not our goal with any, with any story and especially with the community story. So I was stoked that, you know, with that lacrosse draft, we were able to like, you chimed in with some things, Jed Olson chimed in with some things and I was able to, to make those uh, adjustments in the story. And then in the end, it, it's a relief for me because I'm like, well, when the story does, once it's published, it's published and you can't go back. And so for me, it's, it's a real kind of weight off to be like, I, I'm confident that it, people are going to be happy with the story because the key figures have actually already read it. <laughs> so I don't know if I should be sharing these secrets with, the industry, but that's the way we kind of operate at Freehub. And I, you know, I feel like it's the right way to go for, for so many reasons, if for the very least, just to make sure stories are accurate. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I'm sure it's got to help you really get like a sense of community feeling from that community as well, you know, to really kind of understand what's, you know, what's at stake as far as what the community is doing, whatever the, you know, whatever the topic is. Yeah. And it's been, that's one of the beauty, beautiful things about Freehub is because it's put me more in the editing trenches than like my last several years at bike. I was still editing, you know, all the stories that went into the magazine, but I wasn't necessarily doing the, um, all of the kind of fact checking back and forth with people in individual communities. And I felt, you know, cause I was having to deal with more corporate level things with the publishing group. And it really made me feel less connected to to the nuts and bolts of each story and you know at free I, I i'm so much more connected to these things and i've you know i've been over the past two and two and a half years i've made a lot of new friends that aren't necessarily like you know in like high profile industry people whereas you know back in the day that might have been like a broader network but it's the more of the nuts and bolts people on the ground in each community, like the Les Warnocks of Chattanooga, you know, guys like you and Jed in, in lacrosse. And that's made the job a lot more gratifying for me because I'm, I'm like actually making new friendships um, with people that I might've heard of, or maybe not even heard of until, until I read about them in a story that I was editing. And or a story that I'm writing or researching, you know? And so it's definitely much more like, you know, I know that word organic gets overused a lot, but it is a much more granular kind of organic approach that's 
helping me feel more connected to, you know, the ins and outs of each story. And also, you know, the final product itself, I feel is more of a, it's more like giving birth to something that's like, you know, comes from all of the contributors, photographers, writers, sources, people in the communities <laughs> filtered through me <laughs> and, and, the, and the rest of the Freehub team, obviously. So it's, uh, it's kind of like every issue, you know, and they're big beasts of an issue. You know, there's a lot of our ad edit ratio is we have never more than 30% of an issue is ad advertisements. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's a, that allows us to have, you know, at least 80 plus pages of pure editorial in any given issue and often more. So, you know, it is like every issue is like giving birth really <laughs> to a, to a big nine pound baby. Yeah, for sure. So you've talked about you know, early on, you talked about different types of trail and stuff, and you've obviously traveled more than I think anyone I've ever talked to, whether this show or in life. In your mind, what does make a good mountain bike community? Like, what are the things you like to see? And not just the trails, but the whole community, like the aggregate of that community. Oh, wow. That is a tough one because that puts like, um, that's a tough question to answer because I almost, my answer would be almost hypocritical vis-a-vis where I live right now. And one of the reasons why I'm still living in North San Diego County is because, um, well, it's a lot of old friends that I have here. And then I'm also still really, I've got one foot in the mountain bike world and one foot in the surf world. And it's hard for me to leave the ocean as well. So if I was living, and this is no diplomatic way to put this, if I was, if I were to be living in the ideal mountain bike community, it wouldn't be North San Diego. And it's because it's just not, it's a bigger population center and it's more culturally, it's more surf centered part of the world vis-a-vis where it's proximity to to the ocean. So my idea of perfect mountain bike community is is much more probably romanticized and idyllic. You know, there are many of them, you know, I think, you know, I think a lot of the communities in the Pacific Northwest have become kind of like viewed as paradigms. I think a lot of that culture came from, you know, British Columbia being the, I think, the undisputed like barometer for progression in mountain bike trails and trail building and and even just everything that spawned out of the free ride movement. And all that has kind of like filtered through the Pacific Northwest and has actually been an inspiration to, you know, globally and definitely through, you know, the lower 48 states. Um, and even the guy, Les Warnock, the guy in Chattanooga that I was just telling you about, he was inspired to to, you know, get started with this Walden's Ridge net network after he went and rode in Squamish, BC. He went there actually for a part climbing trip and a part riding trip. And that was in the Chattanooga feature, this story. And he rode all like all those insanely great trails in Squamish, including a lot of the rock roll trails with those big long giant rock rolls. And he came back to Chattanooga and he's like, we need more of this. So, you know, I I like, you know, I've been riding mountain bikes so long that I also love a good long climb and I love backcountry rides. I like a little bit of everything. 
So I'm kind of an eclectic mountain biker. I, and I also love descending is probably still the most fun part is, you know, at the end of a climb to have a, a nice long ripping descent is always the icing on the cake, you know? So I like all different kinds of trails. And I also like to do in my personal life, I do a lot of kind of backcountry adventures. And that's perhaps what I've become kind of in my own features that I've written at Bike Mag and Freehub over the years. And the short films we've done, I've become more associated with, you know, international backcountry full suspension bike packing slash free ride trips. And I suppose that's what I've maybe I'm viewed more as that type of gravitating towards those types of things. But honestly, one of the main factors for those types of things is my periodic need to just get the hell away from society and an office. And I've spent a lot of my life in wilderness areas and on, on, you know, multi-day unsupported expeditions. So it's just, those things are a reset button for me. And so there might be kind of a misunderstanding, I, I perhaps in the public eye that I like, that I only like to ride backcountry scree where there's no trails, which itself is a controversial topic, depending on where you are in the world. And I'm acutely aware of that and, and, uh, had tried to like, you know, tried to mitigate that in, in various ways. But, um, you know, just riding trails last week in Bellingham, getting out, getting out on a really good trail ride with, with my free hub homies last Saturday. And it, you know, they got the first rain that Bellingham has had in the past, you know, couple of weeks at least. And we're riding in the rain and there's the mist and we're going up into this forest, like on a, you know, riding up a fire road into, into this forest. And we just drop into this trail and there's the green moss and the old man beard coming off the trees and you can just hear and i you know i know loam as a word that's overused but i can just see all the pine needle all the evergreen needles on the ground and i'm just thinking that's going to become loam and you drop into the first steep trail and you hear your rear wheel hit the ground and you just hear that deep earth thud and it is one of my favorite feelings in mountain biking is just because i ride in Deep, decomposed granite here at home most of the time you you know you go into terms to, into each turn more conservatively because you can't hold as much speed through your turns so there's nothing like getting back into the pacific northwest for example and get you know getting deep into an evergreen forest and then just dropping into a steep loam trail you know the moment after like we, we rode for a few hours and then we you know went for went for a beer afterwards and I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to move to Bellingham. And, uh, so I don't know if that's a, I kind of, I don't know if I'm avoiding the question or if I've answered the question, but, um, Bellingham's a pretty idyllic mountain bike community, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, it's for you in particular, having that one foot in the surf side of things, one foot in the mountain bike side of things, that's a, that's a tough sell. And I get it, you know, when you want to do both, both of your passions, this is a question that I just thought of now. If you're living in San Diego County, you know, I, I actually growing up, my father lived in San Diego County in, in the Escondido area. And so when I was 
you know, in high school, I'd be able to come out there and ride. And one of the places we would ride, and I don't, and I'm going to ask you this because I don't know if there's trails there still. Is, is there still mountain biking in Julian? There is. There is. There are still trails there, and I think I, I that part of the East County is really where the best trails are now nowadays because you know in the more in the bigger population centers that I mentioned earlier, there's just been you know it's just development rules in bigger population centers. And there've just been so many like planned housing developments and there's a chronic housing shortage here now. So a lot of the, you know, trails in the North part of the County have just been overrun by development. So you have to go further East and higher into higher into the mountains and out, out towards Alpine where, where Kyle Strait lives. There's some really good, for San Diego, it would be considered backcountry riding. Um, you know, in my broader scheme of things, I don't really consider it backcountry riding, but it's a place called the Noble Canyon Trail. And, you know, it's it, it's just a wonderful trail for my, you know, a lot of the things I love about mountain biking because, you you know, it's, it's a big, long climb. If, if you don't shuttle it, it's a big, long climb. And then you basically descend for two hours through four different distinct ecosystems. And certain times of year, you can even start and there's actually snow there, um, which people don't associate with San Diego County. So you get further east into that area, Julian, and then over towards the Alpine area, there's a, there's a lot more. There's just longer trails, you know, and they're higher up in the mountains. And there's still a part of me that's, you know, just loves a good, you know, old school mountain out and back. Something like the 401 Trail in Crested Butte or up in Orange County. When you know, our, our offices of Bike Magazine were in Orange County for probably the first nine years of my time there. And, you know, we used to go ride some trails in the Ortegas when we really wanted to get away from everything. So, but you still have to drive to get to the trailhead. You know, that's the, that's the hard part. And that's an ongoing struggle for me. Uh, psychologically, it's just like, you know, the ability, you know, play, you know, so many other mountain bike towns, you just ride out your back door and you can just ride your bike, you know, along a bike path or something to the trailhead and you're there, you know, and it's, it's, and then there are other parts of the country where that's not possible. And there is a part of me that's gravitating away from, cause uh, you know, I think, I think in the common, you know, in the, eyes of the mainstream, I think a lot of people have an understanding of surf culture and how territorial it can be. And, and it, you know, and now that more people are surfing and learning to surf, um, that kind of friction between long-term surfers and newer people to the sport is even more palpable. And one thing that I've always like, I've always been happy that I've worked for a mountain bike magazine and am part of that community in terms of my work and not part of the surf media community because the mountain bike community, more broadly speaking, is just a much more welcoming place. And generally speaking, like mountain bikers are usually just pretty cool with each other. When you see somebody else on a trail, Usually it's just like, hey, you know, ride on, have a good, you know, have a good ride. You know, there's a much more kind of positive, uplifting vibe. And I know you could like stumble on some 
rogue trail builders, like hidden, hidden lone trail that they just scratched in. There could be friction if you just stumbled upon that and started riding down it. But that's kind of a, those types of events are much more isolated. And so there is a part of me that wants to actually be living in a more kind of cohesive mountain bike community. And there's a part of me that's, that's grown pretty jaded about surf culture. I still love being in the ocean and the dynamic of riding. I like riding heavy, being in heavy surf as well. And the dynamic of being in an angry ocean and intercepting that energy from a storm that could have happened 5,000 miles away. And then you're the last person to intercept that energy before it actually hits the shore is something magical. And it's something I'll always treasure. Um, but I am feeling kind of a need to be connected more to, you know, a, a tighter, smaller community. And that inevitably would be centered around mountain biking. So there could be some changes in my life in the, in the near future. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you know, the whole, that's, that's one of the areas that I feel super fortunate, you know, when you talk about not having to drive to ride, we, you know, to ride to ride, you know, before this, before we started recording this interview this morning, I rode to go ride, you know, and being able to have your driveway or some people call it as your garage, your driveway as your trailhead, you know, is a, is a pretty awesome thing, you know, and that's where I really like the initiative initiative that Imba is doing with more trails close to home and really getting trails into communities and getting trails into neighborhoods for that community, maybe not so much for a tourism aspect, but really for the quality of life within that community and for the people and the professionals and, and kids, especially um, in that community. Yeah, I think that's a really, I think that's going to be a really important approach because, you know, I do think that there, we've all probably been guilty of having a tendency to be like, to, you know, advance our part of our argument for new trails. You know, when especially when you're talking to chambers of commerces and and you know business people within communities, like we've we've used that argument quite a lot. Is that well, this this will also lead to you know more tourism revenue from more outdoor oriented people coming into the town to do this or that. In our case, ride trails, and we've definitely been guilty of that at the magazines, whether it was Bike Mag or Free Hub over the years of even trying to, when we're having a destination focused issue or a project like a gear, an overall gear guide that we're going to do, that's going to have a focus on one community. Part of the way we would try to raise funds so that I could bring more contributors into quote unquote test bikes is to try to get support from tourism bureaus. And that's all implicit on the idea that, okay, when, when we un, unroll all this content, all these bike test videos that we're going to roll out or the, the the print magazine with the big print feature on, you name the destination, you know, Sedona, Pisgah, every Fruta, you know, every place we went over the years to do those, those projects, you know, for me to be able to like hire more people to produce more content and to make the project even bigger in scope. A lot of our argument would be like, we would try to get additional support from tourism bureaus so that I could pay to get a better, you know, two more filmers to come on the, on the trip. And, 
But then that's always implicit on the argument that this will lead to more mountain bike tourism and more, you know, municipal revenue through whatever, you know, hotels, taxes. And that's a good argument. And I think we've we've used it to a lot of success. But I think going forward, this focus, what you were just mentioning, the focus on the actual community that lives there and getting more people within that community um, into riding mountain bikes and building trails is going to be increasingly an important argument. And I think COVID showed us that because when we were like had a year where you really shouldn't have been traveling to other people's towns when places were on lockdown and it was like an ethical question of whether you should be even going out of your town to somebody else's. I think it forced us to kind of like, it forced everyone to look back and be like, okay, there is no mountain bike tourism for at least the time being. And so what do we have now? Well, we've got our local community, you know, so I, I think that could have been a, a, you know, a conflagration of several different factors that kind of has steered us into this kind of growing awareness. Um, And I agree with you. I think that's, I think that approach is going to be even more important going forward. And less less away from the tourism aspect of it. Yeah, one of the things that really took me by surprise when I interviewed Kyle Horvath, who is White Pine County Tourism Director in Ely, Nevada, he said he he outright said, "If I'm doing my job right, I'll get two thousand more people to move to this community." And so this is a guy that's director of tourism that is using tourism as a tool to bring in long term residents. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kyle's, Kyle's, I think, clever on, on that front. I've, I've been a, fortunate to talk to him a few, few times lately. And we, we just had a big feature on Nevada and the, um, in the, our new issue, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. And he was out of everybody in tourism officialdom in the state of Nevada. He was by far the most instrumental in, you know, just helping us kind of get the nuts and bolts planned because that was another thing that we kind of planned on the fly kind of like lacrosse feature where i was like now's the time to you know strike while the iron's hot so to speak get a photographer on the road to to go to four different places four different kind of destinations throughout nevada and get a writer working on the feature and starting to do the research and you know i think i think kyle's smart and it to to be taking that approach because I think ultimately it will go the way he's saying. And I think it, you know, and Ely is a, a small town and, but it's got a growing network of trails and I think he's really smart to get to, you know, focus on getting the word out to the broader mountain bike community because then, you know, definitely more people will travel there to ride and also using it like the state of Nevada as a kind of, stopover between people making their meccas between the American Southwest and the Pacific Northwest, which is something a lot of traveling mountain bikers do every year. You know, people who live in the West, they go from, you know, in the winter, people from the Pacific Northwest go down to like Sedona to ride and vice versa. And there is that kind of pilgrimage. And one quick way to get there is through the state of Nevada, you know, and, and I think by positioning that state as like, Hey, for every mountain biker, this is an essential stopover. I, you know, 
inevitably these places will become like many, I hate to use that word, mountain bike meccas, but like mini meccas in their own right and essential stopovers. So I think what Kyle's doing is great. And I I love, you know, over the years, anytime you find a clued in tourism bureau uh, official or worker, especially if you find a tourism bureau official who is a mountain biker, you need to nurture that relationship. And yeah, so Kyle's Kyle's great. And I think what we're going to see in Nevada in the coming years is it's just going to keep getting better and better. Your brief discussion about Bellingham is, you know, how do you get people to, to figure out that they want to move to your community is you, you travel there and you look around and you're like, could I, could I make a living here? Could I move here? And with the, the way things have going, have been going, especially with COVID, with virtual work, and I've said that I said this for a couple of years prior to COVID, people are now choosing where they live more so based on what there is for extracurricular activities and lifestyle choices more than careers, you know, because not every career forces you to be at an office. I mean, obviously, there's careers that, you know, factory workers and all sorts of stuff that you do have to be on site, but increasingly that is not a thing anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I think people will, you know, increasingly just gravitate to the place where they want to, you know, for lifestyle reasons. And mountain bikers will go to the place where they want to to ride and maybe become semi-nomadic even, you know, like I'm going to say seasonally in this town, you know, so a thing like Pisgah people, like, you know, going back and forth to Bellingham, you know, and then being like, I live half the year in North Carolina and half the year in Bellingham. And then they become fixtures of the Bellingham community. There's a lot of that kind of, yeah, I hate to use it's such a corporate sounding word, but like that kind of cross pollination between communities that's been happening. And, uh, you know, I think it, I think it will continue to happen. I think people will start to, you know, move to communities where they, where, you know, either the scenery or the weather or the types of trails they have there more suit their disposition, you know? And, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, even through writing about these, you know, and publishing stories about these communities, it makes even guys on the staff, you know, we're like, when we can travel, we want to go there. Like, you know, I want to go, I want to come ride with you guys in lacrosse. I want to go ride with the, with the single track trails crew on the Palisades plunge just, and I want to go ride with the, with the people in Chattanooga, you know, it just makes us want to go. Interestingly enough, our operations manager at Freehub, his name's Tom Clark. And he, um, he was recently, he's originally from South Dakota and he, he went on a trip to visit some relatives and stuff. And on the way back, um, he had a stopover in lacrosse and, rode the trails that we wrote about in the feature two issues ago. <laughs> and, and he just told us about that like two weeks ago. He was like, Oh man, they're, he's like, I got to ride the trails that were in the feature. And so it was like, we're, we're even doing that ourselves, you know, it, when, when we get an opportunity and that's, and I, I suppose that's just the whole lifestyle of mountain biking. What keeps, whether it's someone who works within the industry, like product manager for a suspension company, or if you're working in marketing for a bike company, or if you're working for a trail building company, or you're on the media side, working for a website or a magazine or you're a filmmaker, I think that is one of the reasons why we all, I think two of the main reasons why we all keep doing this type of work 
is one because it becomes not just your community, but it's this extended family. And if you try to leave it, you you feel like you've lost, you know, part of your family. And then also, it's just never wanting to give up on that lifestyle that's focused on dedicating a certain amount of time every day or every week to being out in in nature and on your bike or building trails and being with your friends who who also enjoy doing the same thing. And let's be honest, we don't really want to grow up. Most people who know me, I think they think based on my maturity level when they're hanging out with me and all the I'm a pretty goofy person in in real life day to day and I just like to have a laugh, you know. And a lot of as a result, I mean, you know, I'm I've got a pretty immature side when you get outside of my professional career and my job. I'm I just basically don't want to grow up. Most people would have no I'm 51 years old and most people were like, "Really?" Like, yeah, I'm just a big kid. I've never I have no intention of quote unquote growing up, you know, whatever that's supposed to mean. If growing up means that I'm not going to be stoked on my life or stoked to go ride ride a trail or stoked to go surf surf a new swell that's coming in, if that's what growing up means, I want no part of it, you know. And I feel like if you look around the mountain bike industry, like yes, we've become more, much more mature over the years, and you know, and more responsible, but we're still a bunch of adults that kind of don't want to grow up. And I think we, we got to be honest with ourselves about that. <laughs> oh, for sure. And I, I joke all the time that my bike is just a big, it's just, it's just an adult toy. Yeah. That's it's really, it it's really what it is. Right. You know, and you know, you talk about wanting to travel to these places. I do these podcast interviews and every time I get done with the podcast interview, I want to go there. You know, it was, just, it was <laughs> yeah. like when I was talking to Kyle, I'm like, Oh, I got to go to Ely Nevada now. I was, you know, when I talked to Lil Ide, who is based out of, out of kingdom trails. And I do want to talk about that in a minute. You know, I, I've wanted to go to kingdom trails for years and I've been trying to figure out how to get that lined up. And the nomadic thing is, you know, Lil's brother, Knight Eyed, is a really iconic trail builder on the East Coast. He's, he's in Knoxville all winter and he's in, up in East Burke all summer. So he, he lives that same lifestyle that you're talking about where you kind of like dual places and where you live. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, yeah. And it does make you just want to go, you know, to go travel and, and ride those places and with those people. And we're, you know, we're fortunate enough that we have the opportunity to do that from time to time. And, um, you know, I, I do look forward to like, if, and when this pandemic, you know, finally gets under control, you know, I do, I really do miss that part because I've traveled less over this past year and a half than, than I ever have in my adult life. You know, I used to probably you know, in any given year, I'd probably be in 15 different countries over the course of a year. And, you know, not having that makes you realize, you know, when you don't have something, you it does make you acutely aware of that, that you've, how you've taken it for granted in the past. So, you know, I'm really, I'm really frothing to, to, you know, start traveling more broadly in, in North America and just kind of reconnecting with people. Cause that's one of the things that, has made this job so meaningful over, over a broader timeline, you know, it's getting to meet, um, Lilius and I, you know, and when we were in Vermont working on, working on a project and everywhere you go, you realize, you know, make new friends and you ride new trails 
And, you know, and we, and I'm able to kind of, I've always kind of rationalized, oh, well, you're traveling around a lot and everything, you know, is this a responsible thing to be doing? I've always rationalized it. Well, we're going to tell a story in the end about, about this community or about some aspect of a community. So therefore it's justified. <laughs> and maybe that's cognitive dissonance. And I just telling myself what, what I want to believe, but um, it's been meaningful, you know? And so, you know, I totally hear you. you. I'm sure you're frothing to get out there and go ride. I want, I want to go, I want to go ride with, with Kyle and Ely. Why not? Yeah. You know, for sure. And it, and it hit a, hit a bunch of other places on the way. It sounds like they're headed the direction of, of, he said in the interview, the most mountain bikingest highway in North America, when we were talking about the loneliest highway in North America and how there's a bunch of smaller towns, you know, that are between Ely and Carson city and Reno that potentially could become hotspots for really good mountain biking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can completely see it, see it happening, you know? And in our Nevada feature, we even had, uh, we even included, and I'm not sure, I think the, it's pronounced Beatty, uh, Nevada. It's, it's, it's not, as the crow flies, it's not that far from Las Vegas and, and, and uh, uh, Boulder City. But it's a place that you would never, you know, it's basically just a ranch. There's a place called the Spicer Ranch. And um if you read the feature, you know, to see more about it. And we we're able to like get some photographs of this guy named, named David Spicer and he owns the ranch. And, you know, I think he's in his sixties and he just likes riding his mountain bike. So he's just like, yeah, that's the guy. And like, it's so cool to like tell his story. Okay. The trails, you know, they sound like they're, you know, mostly cross country oriented trails and, you know, it, but to me, and so maybe it wouldn't be like making, you know, your, you know, a gravity focused rider making his, his or her annual pilgrimage to British Columbia or whatever. But like just the fact that you've got this guy on a ranch building trails and getting youth leagues to, to welcoming them to come there to ride and building community is like just a beautiful thing. And, you know, I'd never even heard of that place until we started working on the feature. And, you know, our contributor, Brooke Summers Hume, who who had pitched the story was like, oh, and near, because I was like, well, let's include, let's update what's been happening at Boulder City and Bootleg Canyon. And, and then she's like, oh, and did you know there's this place called the Spicer Ranch? And, you know, it's just like an hour from, from, bootleg canyon i was like no i've never even heard of it and she's like yeah and it's like a nice place it's a stopover on your way headed north and i'm like well let's see if we can get our photographer to go there as well and like let's include it in the story and it's like so there's never you know there's no limit to the things you can uncover and like there there's more stuff going on than like any one you know media outlet or magazine can even keep up with so it's just kind of like that's kind of the beauty is you're it's a it's a well of stories that's never going to run dry you know and uh so maybe i'm still going to be doing this when i'm 70 and still renting an apartment <laughs> and uh 
with no retirement. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> and hopefully traveling a lot more than you did this year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's 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 the hope. Yeah. To bring this pretty much full circle, one of the things you talked about early on was was um, how to get more awareness among riders and and I guess I could say being polite to other users and, and users within each other on the trails. And Lilius I'd out in Kingdom Trails, they have I thought was a great initiative going, which is Ride with Gratitude. You know, you should definitely check that out. They've they've got a good uh, movie that they filmed and and I think really good messaging that doesn't make them sound like they're on a pedestal or a podium and but gets the point across, you know, in a, in a fun, pointed, but fun, you know, way. Yeah. I, I think, I think those types of initiatives are, are, I think they're definitely going to become increasingly important just because if for no other reason, because, because of this like kind of unprecedented new influx of people into the sport. And, you know, I've seen behavior on my, you know, nearest, you know, my local trails that I go ride that I've never seen before. And, you know, it's kind of shocking to me because I'm like, you know, yeah, it's, I've never encountered it before. And maybe that type of behavior is, could be peculiarly specific to like a Southern California surf kind of scene where there's territorialism in the water. And then it's those same type of people taking it to the trail. Um, which probably could be more of a thing in a place like Southern California. Um, but it's something that worries me because I'm like, this is not, this is not part of what longtime mountain bikers view as our traditional culture. And I know, I know that like, so like that's a subjective and relative term on what is our traditional culture. And, and that's continually being redefined in the wake of all of, the important social developments that have happened over the past 18 months and as a society as in society as a whole. But I do think like one thing that a lot of like longtime mountain bikers would view as part of our kind of like loose creed is like, is being cool. You know, it's like, that's part of the whole culture is like centered around like, you see another mountain biker, it's a brother or a sister. You know, you just see them, they're part of our broader community. And that's something that's immediately recognized. And I think that we need to, it's going to be up to us to kind of instill that somehow, even through even through our interactions with with newbies that we encounter on the trail and how we relate to them. And it's almost like we're going to have to kind of be models through our behavior. And it's, it's a complicated thing because like every one of us is going to have mixed emotions when, you know, you know, grunt, grunting up a climb last week and these two kids like blast past me on an, on e-bikes, which is fine. Cause you know, I'm not one of those guys that's anti e-bike. I think it's done a lot of, it's got a lot more people on bikes and even though it has been a controversial topic, especially when we were concerned about what the potential impact it could have on overall trail access for mountain bikers. At the same time, like then they went, these guys went into the section of trail that's already pretty blown out and they pedaled up through these like corners 
at high rates of speed and basically dug some ruts into there. And, um, you know, it left me thinking like, what is, you know, what is the answer to this and how, how do we communicate what we're all about to people before they're actually become connected to the sport? So I guess any ideas that any of us can have, whether it's like ride with gratitude or just trying to, you know, be friendly and open to every person you meet on the trail. And if you do get a chance to talk to them, if you're like stopped or something to just kind of convey that ethos of welcomeness and friendliness and maybe eventually then inviting someone to come to a trail day. You know, once you've kicked up a conversation with them and then, you know, we definitely have our work cut out for us. That's for sure. One thing I am actually really proud of as far as mountain biking goes is I think overall as a, as an activity, we are a very inclusive user group, you know, and that's, that's been really, I've, I mean, that's been really apparent in the last 18 months. You know, there are people that get together in mountain biking that otherwise would have not probably even known each other. But the mountain biking was that common bond that brought, you know, whether it's different, um, different people in different social standings or people of, you know, different races or people of different economic standing, you know, it brings, you know, you can look at a crew of five mountain bikers, guys, girls, you know, and they could all be completely different in terms of what they do for a living, where they live, their backgrounds, but they all have the same common bond. And, and I think that's super important and something that we, you know, really need to continue to push forward with because it is, it's one area we've, we've had to fight for our access and fight for what we do. And I think that has helped us be inclusive. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, the inclusivity discussion, which is like really just getting started, but, you know, going back, going back over, you know, say a decade ago, there was a lot of like very valid criticism of, you know, the mountain bike industry and mountain bike media um, of being like very, you know, bro culture and very bro centric. And it, and it was, it was quite valid, the criticism. And even up to this day, um, and, you know, a lot of us, you know, played a role in that. Like even at the magazines, I can remember, you know, when I started at Bike Magazine, there, you know, 90% of every photo that we ever published back then it was still in the free ride like when the free ride era was uh was you know for first exploding and 90 percent of every photo would be of would be of a dude shredding you know and it took a lot of work and a lot of advanced planning and a lot of you know deliberation for us as an editorial team to start changing the way we cover things and be like let's let's you know we we need to, it even starts and it's this is the boring stuff, the tedium. It's just like the same thing within trail building, like the tedium of going to the community meetings and stuff. On the publishing side, the devil is in the details. It's all, all, all the boring like spreadsheets and planning things in advance and trying to plan out volumes of issues in advance, and then being like, and how do we start to reflect the growing number of women that using women as the example in our, you know, in our writing community. And it's, there's so many answers to that. It's a finding more women writers, finding more women photographers, 
getting on shoots where you've got an assigned photographer, make sure they get women out on the shoots and then being able to reflect that in your final product, because it wasn't just magically going to happen. If it still had our, you know, our same, you know, kind of satellite universe of contributing photographers that if you go to the mid two thousands, we're still almost exclusively male. If we're just going to like keep getting them out on the same shoots with the same riders, it's you're going to be continually in the same loop of self-feeding content that speaks to one audience. And it took us a lot of deliberation and like advanced planning to make sure that when we're planning things, we have that representation within stories. And then you can see that being reflected. And that is what will bring people to be more attracted to the sport because, you know, if you go back even to the early 2000s, uh, for a lot of women, I think mountain biking was an off-putting sport because they're like, look at all these bros wearing these clown costumes. And like, I think that, it, you know, over, over time, I think a lot of different factors have, you know, and part of it, I think has been media led in being able to, ref, you know, reflect more accurately the people who are involved in a sport through photography and film and and then being able to see how quickly that will it's like it was like a match to gasoline then all of a sudden it's like we're being more reflected that you know the number of women in mountain biking is just like exponential would be an understatement the growth and it you know it's been a beautiful thing for our sport and now you know going forward now we can all see after the events of the last you know 18 months that now as an industry cycling and mountain biking we're having to look more honestly at the like whether it's whether it's the socioeconomic factors or the cultural factors that have have made for whatever reason mountain biking being like perceived as a predominantly white sport and it's you know it's a it's a complicated discussion, but in essence, I feel like the broad like most mountain bikers are inclusive and want that because it's it's part of just how we interact with each other. And now it's just up to like different points of media to start reflecting how how things will continually change in mountain biking. And it's important, you know, it's an important thing. And it's something that being on the media side of things, it's something I agonize over a lot because it's a responsibility that falls on our shoulders. And it's and it's a and it's a delicate subject. And there's ways of approaching it, and there's ways, you know, of not approaching it that and you know, it's something we all need to be talking about. And you know, my hope is that we can talk about about these broader challenging issues increasingly in a way that's constructive and not and not constantly pointing fingers or being defensive because I, I per, and this these are my personal beliefs. I'm not speaking for free hub. I'm speaking for Bryce Manick. But I personally think that our culture has become over politicized, especially over the past five years. And things that shouldn't necessarily be political issues are have 
become politicized to the point where there's this perception that we're actually more polarized as a community than, than we are. And I don't think that's necessarily true. And I don't think that we're as polarized as we might be led to believe. And I feel like a lot when there's, you know, if you go to certain websites, mountain bike media websites, forums, and there's a lot of like bickering back and forth and certain Instagram accounts, there's a lot of bickering back and forth. And a lot of this is politicized and everything. And I'm in a phase where I'm wondering, like, where is this all going to lead? Because we need to have the discussions and we need to be honest with each other. But to be honest with each other, we can't shut each other down. And so that's the tricky way of maneuvering, you know, and I feel very blessed that with our free hubs audience, you know, it seems like in general, our readership and our social media following are, you know, people who are passionate about mountain biking and trail building, and they're not looking for us to trip up on our Instagram account by using a word that's no longer in vogue, because that could happen to anybody. You know, if you're having a day and you're feeling scattered and you're writing an Instagram caption and you use a word that you, that you know, you use a word that means, you know, a word for transition. And then suddenly you're being, you know, attacked on your account for it. And I've seen that happen in, in our, in our media circles in mountain biking. And I wonder what the end game is, you know, because it's like, in, in an instance, when I saw that the word tranny was used, for example, in an Instagram caption on a, with, with a certain mountain bike media outlet. And I know that the person who wrote that caption, I know who wrote it. And I know that it was, it would, it thought never even crossed this person's mind that that could be something in that moment, that that could be something that would be, could be offensive or derogatory towards the transgender community. And I know for a fact that the person who wrote that caption, because I talked to him about it, that was never even crossed his mind. And, but it raised a big discussion that happened on that, on that social media account. And, and it's probably a discussion that we need to be having as, as a community. But I, I, you know, I agonize over what's the best way to have those discussions because there's no easy answers and pointing fingers and blaming people. I'm, I'm not sure that that's going to get us to where we need to be, you know, so that's going to be a challenge as we're, you know, as we're going forward. And it's something that, you know, in the media, you're, you're right in the middle of the flame, you know, and, and it's, it's definitely caused, you know, caused even all of us at FreeHub to start like, looking even more closely at how we, how, you know, how we word things and how you word a caption when you have like 10 minutes to bash it out, you know, before you go on to your next task, you know? So Josh, I'm sorry, I've gone off on a tangent we're not talking about trails anymore. And, um, and I hopefully am not blowing myself up by uh, like addressing this subject, but it's, it's definitely something that is, is going to be, an ongoing thing that we're going to be talking about as mountain biking continues to grow and as we want it to grow. And it's something we're all going to have to be honest with ourselves about going forward. You know, we deviate off the trails quite a bit because this is still about community. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really is, right? You know, and I think one of the things that I've personally learned over the last year to 18 months is that we got to give each other the grace to really understand why a person maybe thinks the way they think and kind of dig into that. Like, you know, when you, when you just said the word tranny, like to me, that meant transition of a jump. Yeah. And that was it. Or transmission of a, of an automobile, but it, but it, but it definitely means something to, you know, other people and to people in the transgender community, that's something. So, okay. Everybody who looked at that Instagram post by that, by that outlet, and read all the comments was learning in that moment. Okay. The language is evolving mm-hmm. that we need, we need to be and language look over our lifetime. It's always been evolving in terms of which terms are no longer considered acceptable anymore. We've, I mean, you know, I'm 51 years old. I've lived through multiple generations of like, you know, language evolving and us as a society coming to terms with, this is something that, that, if you don't want to offend people, you should not use this, this or that term. And we're going, you know, we're going through another radical period of this. And I think that's something that societies will constantly deal with, with each new generation that comes up, you know, and as, and as certain societies, particularly North American and Western European, that I think are more politically progressive globally, as we go through these, you know, each generational change, it's some, it's going to be something that society is going to need to reckon with as a whole. And as a words, as a words person, someone whose life revolves around writing words and editing words, it's definitely something that I think about all day long. And it's something that it's a subject that is really close to my heart. And it's something that, but it's also something that where the answers aren't coming immediately. You know, it's something that has to be like agreed by a broader community over time. And that's one thing I'm, I'm enjoying. I've, I've been trying to cultivate some younger contributors um, over the past you know, year and a half and finding new co- contributors in new locations, people I've never heard of before. And, um, you know, in different different locations around North America and actually cold contacting them finding him, okay, I want to do a story on this Harrisonburg. So I'm going to find a, a contributor that I've never worked with before and just cold contact them and say, hey, I'm Bryce from Freehub Magazine, interested in doing a story on this location. And would you be interested in having a phone chat or a Zoom call to pick your brain about it and see if it's something you'd be interested in? And through the course of this, I've I've been able to to start working with some contributors who are even like 25 years and younger. And it's been quite fascinating because like the language, you know, recently had a feature on Harrisonburg and through the editing process and the back and forth with the contributor her and her name's Jess Daddio. And, you know, she's generationally more in tune, more attuned to what the conversations are about, like language that can be viewed as, derogatory towards any different group and just the whole exercise of going back and forth on the edits with her was like really revealing to me because I'm like, Oh, well I, you know, you'd use a certain word and I'm like viewed that as using it more of metaphorically. So I left it in the story and then on the next revision, 
um, she got back to me and she's like, well, my friend just told me that this, this using this word could be, and it was, the word was slum inducing, um, meaning she used it. I thought metaphorically like slum inducing ride, like you're just shattered after a long death march. And, but then on another revision, she was like, well, this, you know, one of my friends just was kind of telling me that that's a derogatory term towards homeless communities and, or other types of marginalized communities. And that, that had never occurred to me when I was editing that story. So it's definitely making, you know, by working with younger contributors, that's, that's been a real eye opener to me because it's making, it's helping me see getting a newer, a fresh window onto these discussions through a younger generation. And it's also forcing me to analyze the actual to actually analyze the words and the copy even more closely than I ever have before, which is both a painstaking exercise, but it's also a, a quite interesting one. Cause I'm like looking at how I edit stories in a, in an even, you know, in a fresher way. So hopefully, hopefully we'll all continue to learn from, from this and, and hopefully, you know, free hubs readers and our growing audience. I mean, our subscriber base is, is, is growing really quickly and hopefully we we generationally we will appeal to you know writers under 25 as well and that will be viewed as an inclusive publication i mean that's that's our goal and even if we don't make that like write that out as our mission statement because talk can be cheap and actions speak louder than words that is one of our many goals is to increasingly be as inclusive as we can. And, and that's just like a natural adjunct to being community focused. You can't say you're community focused if you're not open to being inclusive, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, and that's, and that's why I've made it a point for a couple of different reasons to really, to get good female interviews, you know, on this podcast. And I've, like I walk away from these interviews just totally inspired, you know, it's just like, you you just have, you have a different view on things, especially a lot of the women that I've interviewed, they bring a different energy to the, to the interview that I've, that I don't get from anybody else. You know, it's, it's an excitement that is, is it's, it's amazing, you know? And yeah. And then, and then, and then, you know, just having that as part of our sport has made it like for me, it's personally made, made mountain biking much more enjoyable of a thing. Cause like there's times when you're like, you know, you know, you're on a, you're on an editorial trip somewhere and you turn up and they're like, Oh, it's the bike mag guy. And then all the local dudes want to put the herd on you the first ride, you know, you go like name the location. They're like, Oh, it's, it's Bryce from bike mag. Okay. We gotta, we gotta put the herd on him straight out of the gate. and so, you know, that's happened to me more times than I can even remember. And yeah, that's part of the fun too. But, you know, there are times when, you know, any humans not, not feeling a hundred percent and just not really feeling up to that. And, you know, that generally speaking, when you, you know, say I go to a new place and I'm riding with women there, it doesn't feel like their immediate goal is to put the herd on me, you know? Even when they're like full on pinners and could totally just like, you Rip know, legs off, dust me straight up. Yes. Dust me straight out of the gate. 
it doesn't seem like that's generally speaking the modus operandi. And I personally appreciate that, you know, and like, you know, my last few years at Bike Magazine when Nicole Formosa was our managing editor, it was just like such a breath of fresh air to be able to like work with her because we, you know, we'd been a predominantly, we'd been just a bro staff by default up to that point. And to just be able to like have her insight editorially on things and her perspective um, as a woman in the sport was like invaluable. And it, it was, it was the catalyst that actually was able for us to make a real shift in that, not just like, Oh, we're making sure we get photographers, you know, you know, women on shoots, um, you know, women writers, women photographers, but to actually have a, a managing editor who's kind of running the editorial show and having her perspective day in and day out, you know, without that, we wouldn't have been able to have gotten nearly as far as where, where we did with quote unquote inclusivity. And then also just just the energy she brought to the office and to producing magazines and all the other content, you know, it was just something that is just so needed, you know? And so, and now we see where we are, you know, where mountain biking is now vis-a-vis where it was even like eight or nine years ago. And, you know, I think we're going to continue to see it change and just to see like things like, and I know this is on the extreme edge of progression, but things like, the Red Bull formation and just how far uh, women have progressed on, on that extreme cutting edge progression side of the sport is just mind blowing. And I'm like, I'm so glad that the industry has come around and the industry, meaning all of us, but even down to bike companies realizing that like sponsoring, sponsoring a woman rider, for something that's not just race results because up until a few years ago, if you weren't getting race results, you weren't going to keep your sponsors very long as a, as a woman rider. And that has shifted as of a few years ago. And I feel like Casey Brown was kind of, you know, kind of a linchpin for that and being able to like have, have, you know, major sponsors like Trek and Cliff and Bell and letting her, do her thing and not having it being tied to race results has been, you know, an inspiration to everyone because then she's able to do her thing. And she's one of the greatest ambassadors in mountain biking. She's able to do her thing and not just be rigidly focused on racing and look at all the inspirational content that's come out of that over the past three years. Women see Casey Brown in a, in a, in an anthill film or in a new video that's come out or in a magazine with insane photos published of her, like just shredding. And there's whole generations of, you know, women and girls coming up that just want to ride like her and like now want to ride like Vero, want to ride like Hannah Bergman, you know, we've needed this. And it's like, it's just going to, it's, it's, great for mountain biking for me it's it's been really exciting to see it all actually you know 
really happening and taking off. And I know that we there's still a long way to go. Um, but the, you know, the way the wheels are in motion for sure. And it's like, it's only a good thing for mountain biking. And I think we need to take the lessons that we've learned on this gender in- inclusivity discussion over the past 15 years. And now I'll look at that in terms of where, like where we're headed as a community in terms of like racial and ethnic inclusivity. And a lot of that's even socioeconomic, you know, cause it costs a lot to, to buy a high end mountain bike. You know, I can't afford a new bike right now. I was going to say you can't get and, one anyway, so it doesn't matter. Know, and it can order one if you tried anyway, but, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, that's a, that's a whole kind of, you know, that's, that's a whole other podcast right there. But like, it's, um, you know, that's, that's part of any, any sport, whether it's any action sport, whether it's surfing or skiing or mountain biking at cost of entry, if you want to get like, once you start to progress, you're going to want that higher performing bike or that, you know, you know, lower volume surfboard. And, you know, I guess those are the questions we're going to be asking ourselves in the coming years. It's like how, you know, how does this factor into, you know, the whole socioeconomic tapestry of, of the United States or Canada or wherever, wherever geography we're talking about. But I've got us way off topic now, Josh. I'm like, well, well, to bring us back into, back into full circle and wrap this thing up, we'll go back to more trails close to home. I mean, that right there, equipment aside, that's how we, that's how we bridge this socioeconomic thing, you know, so we don't have to drive people to trails, you know, so we can get people to trails by just them running the trails, whether they're a trail runner, hiking the trails, if they're a hiker, riding their bike to trails, getting kids on trails, you know, getting, uh, and, and regardless of, of the, of their social, socioeconomic standing, you know, lowering that barrier. So they can get there themselves. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is this is this is a good one. This we're we've been going. I hit record two hours and seventeen minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's it's been it's it's been a lot of fun. It's like I I like you know I like to skip around topics. One thing leads to another, and uh, um, but I'm I'm uh I'm stoked to be that you invited me and uh. Hopefully people will be interested in what, what old Bryce mag has to say. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully I don't, hopefully yeah. I didn't, didn't blow myself up by saying too much. We'll see. No, I think you'll be good. This is, I mean, we, at the end of the day, we're all, you know, we're in this together. We're doing the, we're doing the best we can to be the best humans we can be. And, you know, and that's really why we're doing this, you know, and that, you know, I, you've talked about a lot of stuff especially in the most in the tail end of this episode. And, and I, I'm waiting for this next episode to come out that hasn't been released yet, which is going to be two or three episodes before what we're talking about goes live, but it's with, it's with Brooke Gowdy. And I don't know if you know, Brooke. No. Oh, you, you, you need to know Brooke. Really? And you'll know, and you'll know Brooke after this. She's a Yeti ambassador. She's a, a black girls do bike Denver ambassador. Um, she just rode the, the great divide trail this summer, bike packing. She just wrapped that up a week or two ago. She's an amazing force 
of getting women and especially women of color on mountain bikes in the Denver area. That's sweet. And, and so if, you know, you're going to see a lot more media on her because there's a lot more media that's being made. There's, I know there's a movie being worked on right now by Yeti and a couple other people to kind of bring her more to the forefront. But she's like, when I reached out to her, it was through Bryce Sherbach. He, he gave me her connection. Okay. You could tell there's a little bit of hesitancy on her end. Like, I don't know if I really want, I don't know who this guy is, what he wants to talk to me about. And so she wanted to have a phone call before we recorded. And I'm like, yeah, for sure. Like, I want to make sure this is right for you. I don't want to just record an interview that isn't right for you. And within, I don't even, I don't even want to say 30 seconds of being on the phone. We instantly hit it off, you know, and now we text regularly and we're, I call her a friend. I mean, she's a, she's a friend. And if it wasn't for mountain biking, you know, that's, that's what brought us together. Yeah, that's, that's, that's beautiful. You know, it's, I, I've even experienced a similar thing recently with, um, you know, Alexandra Hochen. Have have you, do you know her? Mm -hmm. And, um, we're, you know, I probably shouldn't spill the beans, but we're working We're you know, the issue we're just finishing right now, we've got a big feature on her and, um, just getting to know her in the process because she's like, and you know, I'll, I'll be fully candid here. She's had a couple of features written about her in more of the mainstream cycling world. One of which she was not happy with the outcome because of what she described to me as the, the angle, you know, of the story being from, you know, a privileged point of view. And, and even, you know, when it described things from her, you know, periods of her life and her upbringing, um, you know, using things like using terminology like that, she fell in with the wrong crowd and stuff like that. And that hurt her because she was like, those were my friends. And yeah, we, we got involved in some, some bad shit, but they were my friends. And that's kind of a, you know, that's coming from a certain point of view that you're saying, okay, well, they did bad things. She got in with a bad crowd and she was like, what would happen if my friends read that story? And they're, you know, they're the wrong crowd and it's a real eye opener, you know? And so with, with the piece that we're doing, Alexandra, we're like, well, why don't you write your own piece? And, and let's just have this coming straight from your heart as to, you know, what you want to talk about your experience as and you know someone who increasingly identifies as an Ojibwe woman and and how that factors into your your incredible racing performances like with Tour Divide and like her records and it's just fascinating because she's like I feel like I'm giving this away, but maybe that maybe this podcast will come out just when the new issue is coming out and it won't give it all away. But like she's increasingly viewing racing as ceremony, not unlike, you know, uh, a sweat or a traditional kind of ceremony. And it's it's just been fascinating, like talking to her about it and being like, you know, we're like, hey, we're open. We want we want you to in some way tell your story. If that means you telling your story, let's do it this way. And at the same time, yeah, we've become friends and it's like, and I've learned a lot of stuff, things that I definitely wouldn't have known if I hadn't have, um, you know, if we hadn't have, you know, 
decided to that this is something another story that we want to tell at Freehub, you know. So yeah, we're yeah. we're learning a lot of new things, aren't we, Josh? <laughs> we are. And it's and it's awesome. And Alexandra has done some pretty amazing things. Oh man. I mean, you know, she's from the upper Midwest. She's done some pretty, you know, iconic events, even it were, you know, up up by where we live up here where I'm, you know, she's I think she's from Duluth, correct? Yeah. Originally. Or at least she goes to college there. Uh, you know, or um, I don't, I don't personally know her. I've just, you know, seen her and what she's done and been, and been pretty inspired, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's incredible. And like, just, just the, her, just her methods of like how she prepares for races. And then, um, you know, even down to the kit she wears is like, you know, she, she does those races in hiking boots mm-hmm. and, I, I just love the originality of it. I think it's so refreshing. And even from a journalistic point of view and like how how the sport has consistently gets represented in like advertising, you know, obviously a lot of companies want to sell apparel, shoes, you know, the kit, the uniform that we all that that many people come to view as like that's what you need to be wearing if you're a real mountain biker. And I kind of love like just like turning that upside down and it's nothing against, you know, know, the apparel companies and things like that. There's so many good companies and they make good things, but then mountain biking also to many people is about just self-expression and like, you know, it, to me, when you just see somebody on a trail, it's that's, you can tell they're just stoked and running you know running what they brung you know basically kit wise bike wise to me as as a long time and perhaps jaded mountain bike editor i find it just eternally refreshing like i way rather see that than someone in the same helmet and kit that i'm wearing yeah. you know because then then it's like where's where's our actual originality and and individuality you yeah. know for sure so well, I may have to uh, text a good buddy of mine and bike shop owner um, out of the Viroqua, Wisconsin area. He was he was the first podcast interview I ever did, and he went over two hours, and I think you just beat his record. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> he's, also, he's also a Kona dealer, and he loves Bellingham, and he actually sells more Kona kids bikes than any other really? retailer in the country. Wow. Or Kona. Yeah. Nice. So, or more Kona kids bikes, I should say, not kids bikes in general, but Kona specific bikes. And so Pete's record just fell. Sorry, Pete. Yeah. Well, <laughs> tell him that Bryce Mag's a talker. That's where all those words come from. <laughs> That's how the magazine yeah. pages get filled. But um, yeah. That's good. I know, I know he likes uh, Freehub Magazine as well, too. Nice. So yeah, we, you know, everybody, everybody who reads us, we, we love them. You know, there's nothing more important to us yeah. than our, our subscribers, like literally nothing more important than our subscribers. Yeah. Like we don't ever want to lose a single one. Like if someone doesn't, if yeah. someone doesn't renew their subscription, we, we ask them why we're like, why <laughs> we literally do. Why yeah. is there something else we should do? And then, you know, often it's just like, oh, my auto renew didn't work, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Well, t- tell him I said thanks, and uh, yeah, Josh, thanks for having me on the show. I really, really appreciate it. It's been been fun, fun chatting, and uh, you know, if you ever get down this way, be sure to let me know, and we'll go go up for a rip, and vice versa. 
Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I need to get back that way. One of these, one of these uh, days. In fact, the previous episode that just came out was with Victor Sheldon, who lives in your neighborhood, sort of. Oh yeah. Yeah. In the broader scheme. Yeah. Yeah. In the broader scheme. Yep. You know, also a friend of Kurt Gens- Gensheimer. Yeah. It's like that three degrees of separation thing. When it comes to mountain biking, it's, it's like, you know, it's like, 20 degrees of separation because like everybody you talk to it's like oh well yeah oh yeah and he's an old friend of mine and yeah and i knew her from there and it's like for such a big community it can feel really small sometimes because of the you know how interwoven it is yeah yeah for sure well thank you bryce yeah thanks for having me josh and uh yeah i look forward to chatting sometime soon oh for sure thank you for listening Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. This podcast has been made possible by Mountain Bike Radio, Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is an Evolution Trail Services production. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. 